but do you do you agree with me that that this whole right versus left 99% of it is just that it's simple rhetoric that really means a whole lot of nothing i think it it undermines not only like you know what you're saying like you know it creates a false division but it also you know it limits our imaginations you know we're having we just had this conversation about what would the world look like if we ended the world the war on drugs you know if you're concerned about the agenda of a certain political party you can't even imagine that because neither one of them is proposing it it's not on, it's not on the debate stage it's not being yeah. talked about on on the news in the same way so no. yeah i think that does a lot of damage to what people can imagine in terms of what uh what kind of world we want to live in Hey y'all, welcome back to Gramps Place, where my guests and I discuss all things of public interest and anything else that might need a little changing in the good old USA. From ending the drug war and freeing those wrongfully imprisoned for crimes that have no victim, to making government more like what our forefathers intended of we the people again. I talk with doctors, scientists, politicians, and more, so you can make your own decisions on important issues in the USA. My guest in this episode is an assistant professor of sociology at Malloy College in Long Island, New York, Michael Rosino. His teaching and research interests include race and ethnicity, political sociology, social movements, media, and human rights. His first book, Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media, was released on March 16th of this year. His work has appeared in venues such as Social Currents, Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, Ethnic and Racial Studies, and Deviant Behavior. Having a lifelong deep interest in politics, government, and economics myself, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while. We talk about racial and political meanings, the drug war and its impacts on racial oppression, the possible effects of the ending drug war, political rhetoric and its role in destroying democracy, and much, much more. In fact, we talked about so much, so in-depthly, that we had to split this into two episodes, so this episode is just part one. Let's meet Michael and get this conversation going. Hello, Michael. Thank you for joining me here on Grant's Place. Thanks for having me on. Tell our audience who you are and a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am an assistant professor of sociology at Malloy College. I do research on a lot of different issues from a sociological perspective, uh, particularly focused on issues of racial inequality, uh, human rights, democracy, um, and, uh, you know, I recently wrote a book that looks at uh, drug policy in the United States called Debating the Drug War. And, and I'm really interested in, in sort of the ongoing, uh, you know, activism, conversations that are being had in the public and in the media about drug policy. And, um, you know, really excited to be doing this work at a time where a lot of uh, – a lot, at least, you know, at the state level, at the local level, a lot of uh, folks are having some real successes in terms of policy victories, and we're seeing a little bit of change happen. So, yeah, I'm excited to be here. 
um, and have this conversation with you. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now because I, I haven't read your book, but it's on one it's on the list that, that I want one of the ones I want to get. Um, it's politics, economics, social equity. These are all things that have been an interest of mine for decades. Uh, I've spent probably better part of 40 plus years prior to my my son's passing from epilepsy, which got me started on the whole cannabis advocacy train. Um, studying just that, you know, poli- politics, social equity, social economics, the, the whole bit. Um, but these are all things, in my opinion, due largely to the media because either they're their lack of emphasis or or other reasons are things you know the voting population has lost track of or, or at least forgotten about when it comes to the ballot box on election day. Let's talk about your research. You've got a strong desire from from everything I've seen and and, and other interviews I've heard you do. You've got a, a very strong desire to bring some things to light that drive your research. What are they? For me, I'm really passionate about about racial justice. I think that, um, you know, the more research I've done as as a scholar, the more that I've gotten to know the history of the United States. Um, like many folks, you know, I grew up in a in a, in a kind of a suburban, predominantly white setting. So, you know. The more that I've done this kind of work, the more that I've I've understood sort of some of the um, contradictions and issues at the heart of the United States when we have simultaneously, you know, these ideas of freedom and democracy, but at the same time, massive systems of oppression taking place, you know, at the foundation of our country that we've never really fully resolved, we've never fully really even dealt with, and and there's even, you know, this deep contestation over even exposing and telling that history that we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, for me, I've always been passionate about that, probably since I was uh, really started learning about some of these things um, as a young man. Um, I also was someone who, you know, like a lot of people, I grew up... um, experimenting with different substances, trying different substances. And and really, I remember, you know, like, I think a lot of people had this experience as a teenager. Um, There starts to be this point where, you know, your received messaging about drugs and and drug use um, really kind of exposes itself as a lie, either through lived experience, through you know, doing some some research or looking further into these issues. So, you know, from a young age, I've also been really interested in sort of like, why do we have the drug policies that we have? You know, that that they're they're not only counterintuitive, as I'm sure you, you know, expose and talk about, um, you know, counter to the scientific evidence, but they're also playing such a big role in maintaining these systems of inequality. So for me, um, the opportunity to research on this topic and write about this was kind of a perfect fit. And particularly, I'm really interested in the relationship that the media plays to all of these, uh, you know, institutions and outcomes. So, you know, the the one thing I think about a lot is like the average person who maybe doesn't have any experience with 
the criminal legal system or doesn't have any direct experience of understanding what um, substance use is like in, in someone's life or, you know, any understanding that's up close and personal, the media is actually going to be where they have access to all these stories and, and, and images that oftentimes people use as sort of a fill-in for direct experience or doing their own research. So, you know, we can't really talk about these kind of these kind of things. We can't talk about these un- injustices if we don't also bring in the role that the media plays. So this this relationship between inequality and politics and media, um, it's a relationship that I, I I'm continue to just really be motivated by to try to understand and and expose and, and write about. And just, you know, share with people, um, you know, not only my students, but I've just had so much fun going on podcasts and talking to folks um, who are kind of on the ground doing a lot of this work or or spreading awareness. Uh, That's been a great experience as well. Yeah, uh, the whole the whole advocacy world is a great experience. You know, I, I didn't get involved in it until, of course, my son passed away back in 2016. And then. Uh, I was more or less just a keyboard warrior for for the first mm-hmm. couple of years, but a, a lot of that was me doing the research and 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 reading the research, right? So mm-hmm. it took me a couple of years before I actually broke into the, the, the to actually being out there in the public and speaking and 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 doing all these different things. Tell us. How, in your opinion, can racial oppression shape participation in grassroots democracy? So um, that's actually a, a project that I'm, I'm actually working on for my next book. So this is a good kind of, um, you know, this, I think this has kind of led me in this direction. So I think my my book that, and I'm actually I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure my publisher sends you a copy. I should have I should have done that already. Um, you know, it's one of the benefits I have as an author is I can I can shoot you a free copy. Well, and I, I know that. I know you'll be interested. I know you'll read it because I know you're passionate about this stuff. So I'm happy to do that. Uh, but, yeah. So one of the questions that kind of was lingering in my mind as I was, you know, doing this research on the media and all these policy discussions was what does it actually look like on the front lines of these attempts to actually change policy? Um, to, you know, at the local level, at the state level, whether it is anything from, you know, reforming the, the legal system to, you know, uh, giving people better access to resources and opportunities, you know, protecting the environment, all of these kinds of issues. I think a lot of researchers like to say, okay, uh, you know, here's this problem. I know that it's there. And I'm really hoping that some people will get will, will be engaging in all this democratic action to try to fix it. And for me, I wanted to understand, you know, what is life like for folks that are really, um, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, of doing grassroots democratic engagement. That's a that's a rare kind of person in the United States, unfortunately. Yeah. But it also is these days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, but also I think, you know, there's there's a lot of research demonstrating all the barriers to getting involved. So I wanted to know what are people doing actually on the ground to try to address those barriers? And and so racial oppression not only shapes like who show, shows up at the ballot box, you know, there's all this research on how different laws can be discriminatory um, in their application, 
obviously Texas has a lot of issues with, you know, the location of, of uh, voting locations, with voter ID laws, a lot of these policies that are discriminatory in their effects. But I also wanted to look at, like, what's happening at the very grassroots level of, like, communities coming together and pushing for change? How are they dealing with and overcoming the these barriers? And really what I found that was so interesting was – among sort of people who are really fast, who are really, really passionate about grassroots democracy, there's different motivations for why they get involved. Um, and that's going to really impact their strategies. So yeah. I noticed that for, for participants in my uh, study who were people of color who had experiences growing up um, where they, you know, firsthand experienced racial discrimination and, and they were very aware of these inequalities and how they impact people, they had much different understandings about what the stakes were for um, their engagement with, with grassroots democracy. So they really thought it, about it in terms of uplifting and supporting uh, specific communities, wanting to build sort of authentic relationships with communities and um, being very willing to challenge um, even within their own organizations, some of the habits or assumptions that the white participants held that would have uh, prevented them from doing that. Um, in contrast, I noticed a lot of the, a lot of the white participants in my study um, were much more interested in getting involved because it, it gave them a sense of identity, maybe as like a good, you know, they feel like they're a good progressive because they're getting involved or, um, mm. you know, their friends that they really like hanging out with and having conversations with are in these groups. So it's a chance for them to see their friends. They had very different understandings of why to get involved. And they had different understandings of, of what strategies to undertake. So I think that was one of the things that I really noticed. And, and, you know, coming back to the conversation of uh, drug policy and cannabis reform specifically, I think this is something that I'm, I see mirrored in the, drug policy reform organizations. So on one hand, you have local grassroots activists in a lot of places who are really tying, uh, you know, cannabis policy reform to these injustices and really saying, no, this is a total package. It's not just about, you know, uh, the tax revenue that this is going to raise. It's not just about sort of the, the um, you know, the freedom and liberty to consume cannabis, which is, you know, therapeutic or harmless, you know, depending on, mm -hmm. on what you're using it for. Sure. But, but that this can also be a way of addressing um, some real racial oppressions that have kind of compounded over U.S. history that have, have coincided with, with uh, the war on drugs. So the fact that predominantly Black and Latino neighborhoods have been targeted for uh, drug enforcement, despite the fact that the majority of people who commit drug crimes are white in the United States, or yeah. the fact, you know, mass incarceration, like there are certain strategies that have been taken by drug reform organizations or, or marijuana reform organizations that have really attempted to either take a colorblind approach. Like, we don't want to talk about racial uh, inequality because it can yeah. be alienating or because it might hurt our cause. Um, well, and, and on the on the flip side of that, there there's a lot of lot of activists 
uh, of color that I've known over the last few years that that give up because mm-hmm. uh, they don't see it having any, any benefit to to the racial indifferences. Um, Absolutely. You know, because there's there's a lot of politicians, a lot of elected officials here in Texas and and abroad across the nation, um, who who don't admit to mm-hmm. those those differences. Um, you know, you talk about political meanings um, a lot, and 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 how can this, d- describe how this participation can be refined by racial political meanings? So I think one of the things that happens is when people get involved, it does change them. So like you were saying, with with the high level of burnout among activists of color, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you know, their participation is reshaping how they think about themselves, how they think about opportunities for change. Um, and and they come to a different sense about, you know, their 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 political identity or even like what strategies to pursue. And this is something, yeah, that I've definitely seen in my work as well is, is, um, you know, a lot of times these barriers do create a lot of burnout and there's really kind of people are, are constantly, you know, as a sociologist, I think about it like this, people are constantly trying to make sense of the world around them. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially when you're in something as contentious as activism or grassroots politics. And so, what I've noticed is, is that that commitment to or that commitment to combating racial oppression, um, you know, how strong that desire is, is really going to shape how people make sense of the fact that it does seem like a, a, a pretty strong barrier. You know, there's there's a lot of possibilities for people who don't uh, highlight that issue of racial injustice to really just make a more or less libertarian case for legalizing cannabis. It's going to raise, you know, it's going to, it's going to contribute to uh, freedom. It's going to, uh, you know, maybe raise some tax revenue. It'll free up, you know, it'll create all these industries. It's good for economic growth. And all of those things obviously do have real benefits. Sure. Explain how uh, racial inequality can determine the demographics, strategies, and leadership of political organizations. I think, you know, the the history of of racial inequality and the the systems that maintain it, um, it does have a big impact on on who's able to participate in these, these movements and in these groups. So when you think about what it takes for people to spend um, extra time and energy to be part of an activist group, whether it's, you know, trying to reform drug laws or trying to reform the legal system. The fact that there are so many barriers to access, so some things that that would uh, be included in that would be things like, um, you know, who has the time and energy on top of everything else that they're doing to be involved. A lot of people are involved in in grassroots politics, either because they're really passionate about the issue, so they go above and beyond, which leads to some of those issues of burnout. Or there's someone who is, you know, maybe they're retired, or, you know, they have a lot of flexibility with their schedule. And what that ends up doing is that sometimes... Um, you know, people are involved for different reasons. Uh, and that means people showing up 
either because they're really passionate about it, but maybe they don't have extra time and energy or people showing up and maybe they don't have quite as much skin in the game, so to speak, but this is kind of their post, uh, you know, post-retirement project or something that, that, that um, you know, they're doing just to feel good about themselves. And those kind of differences are really going to lead to different ideas about what needs to be done, what the focus is, what the goals are. And that, that's a conflict that I've seen a lot in terms of organizations, just this question of motivation. Yeah. And I, yeah. Motivation is, is a big biggie uh, from mm -hmm. all aspects, but especially when you start talking about the, the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Pardon this short break for a word from our sponsors. Hey y'all. Are you enjoying the guests and subjects Gramps is bringing you each week? Did you know Gramps does this all on his own? No production team and no producers. Just Gramps. Please consider making a monthly contribution to help Gramps continue to do what he does in an effort to educate, agitate, and motivate millions to get involved. It is as easy as clicking on the link in the show description that says, support this podcast. It can be as little as 99 cents per month. As always, Gramps thanks you for listening and for your support. Welcome back to Gramps Place, the podcast where Gramps and his guests talk about all things of public interest. Speaking of the war on drugs, um, you obviously believe that, that this is all connected to the war on drugs, uh, but I'm curious to know uh, through all your research what your opinion is. Uh, do you believe that, say, we, we finally came to the great realization as a nation uh, across all 50 states, et cetera, that, that we end the drug war? Mm -hmm. Do you believe that that's all it will take to end these racial oppressive actions, or will, will there be more work still need to be done? I think I think it would be an important step because in a sense it would get rid of one potential tool for uh maintaining racial oppression just in the fact of how our drug laws are enforced yeah. but I don't I don't think I, I I don't you know I think it's an important step but I don't think that um just ending these these practices is is enough um in the sense that you still have this legacy. You still have the shadow of what's happened to communities across the United States where people have had their families upended. People have had, um, you know, their loved ones, you know, locked in cages. People have had, you know, their communities completely, uh, you know, reshaped by the, the ways that they have to interact with law enforcement, for instance. Um, you know, all of these really tangible impacts and generations and generations of, of people having their, their lives upended and, and living kind of in terror of, you know, things like no-knock uh, raids or things like, you know, uh, stop-and-frisk laws, for instance, in, mm -hmm. in uh, certain places. 
So I think what needs to happen is, you know, I think fortunately ending the war on drugs also presents an opportunity to create and redistribute a lot of, a lot of resources. You know, the, the fact sure. that, you know, um, the tax revenue that's, that's, that's generated by, by, by commerce, the, the fact that, um, you know, it's an opportunity for people to get involved and start small businesses. Like all of these things are actually opportunities to, to um, actually try to address the uh, imbalances. So, you know, I think, I think it really is about like how we do it. So if we just said, okay, no drug laws are going to be enforced from here on out. Um, I think that would help, but I think what would actually really be a step in the right direction would be to figure out how to uh, make sure that the, that the victims of the war on drugs are the major beneficiaries of the post-war on drugs world that we live in. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think about that a lot. It's not it's not just whether we do it or not, but it's how we do it, and and that's where I see you know the the local state level struggles really playing a big a big role because this is where activists are really trying to get involved and say, okay, maybe there's a politician, um, maybe there's a governor who's very in favor or is willing to reform some of these policies. We need to push them. To make sure that it's not just sort of a, a way of, you know, let's say having uh, really wealthy people benefit or having, you know, uh, replacing that uh, that system with something else that is just as harmful. You know, that's yeah. that's where that's where the, uh, the the conflict and and the the activism really matters is is the how. Yeah. Well, I think you know a lot of it. Um... that's exactly right it's the how and and the who is going to benefit is the second part of that and you know it's it starts in my opinion of course i'm just one man right but it starts with the um expungement well the release of anybody incarcerated number one of non-violent convictions would be would be the starting point I realize there's going to be those that have violent uh, issues with them. And those people, of course, that's a different story. We're talking about only nonviolent drug offenders, right? Uh, But that'd be number one is the release and then expungement of all records. And then they would have to be, in my opinion, need to be. And, you know, a lot of people take this the wrong way. They think I'm talking, oh, you're talking about paying reparations. No, I'm not. I'm talking about opening a, a basically like a SBA program mm-hmm. that's funded through the revenue from the industry, right? Yep. So it's created by the industry itself, but it's mm-hmm. like a small business administration run type scenario strictly for those who have suffered losses uh, or, or, or life changing mm-hmm convictions, et cetera, uh, you know, and those need to be the first people that's eligible, not say it's the only people, just mm-hmm. that they're the first, you know, <clears throat> and, and to me, that'd be a real simple way to set it up. But I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, that's something that I think is being, uh, you know, in, in, obviously the practice of it is complicated, but in, in theory, you know, if you look into places like uh, San Francisco, for instance, which obviously has a host of its own issues that that 
maybe don't translate to the rest of the country, but when they they actually set up a citywide, uh, you know, I think it's called like the cannabis equity uh, like board. And one of the things that they do is is they actually allow whether or not someone has a, that uh, experience of being incarcerated. Um, that actually makes it so that they have an easier time get licensing because that's just a way of, of achieving of, of achieving equity. I think, you know, one of the worst things that could potentially happen would be uh, the same people that made so much money off of the drug war end up being the same people that make so much money off of the post-drug war um legal economy i think i think that's yeah. the part that's kind of scary when you think about large corporations getting involved or, or you know the super wealthy saying okay now this is a safe place to invest but we don't we don't necessarily i don't know how how much it would be an equity i don't think we can achieve equity if we have like uh an amazon type economy and uh you know political sort of lobbying and stuff but it's just that they're selling you know cannabis instead of something else like that's not my that's not my vision of of what uh justice looks like um so yeah i think i think that's that the i like the idea that you that you mentioned of of you know treating it as a way of encouraging small businesses and community owned businesses i think you know, it could be a huge part of, of economic recovery. Um, you know, there's so many different ways that uh, interests line up for for communities, um, you know, when these things happen. And then, uh, you know, the, yeah, go ahead. You, you look at the you look at the what the legalization of just cannabis, not not ending the complete and total drug war would be all drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. But. Just the, the aspect of the cannabis market and all of the various um, industry that that opens up is is phenomenal. I mean, mm -hmm. in my opinion, it would be above and beyond the next industrial revolution because it would not only be the industrial aspect, it would be the medical aspect as mm -hmm. well. So, uh, I mean, that's just unbelievable and then there's not to mention the, the, the amount of money that municipalities uh, would save mm -hmm. in the enforcement of drug laws that they would no longer have to waste their money on you know mm -hmm. of course that, that there's also the aspect that they'd be losing that that proverbial low-hanging fruit as well but mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that that is one of the challenges is I mean, let's be honest, uh, if you are a very wealthy, uh, you know, very privileged person, drugs pretty much are legal for you at this point. Yeah. And if you get if you get caught, you know, you, you can definitely try to get pretrial diversion. You can definitely much easier get into a treatment program rather than having to, to serve jail time. So. I think one of the other issues that, that makes it such an important equity issue is that we already have these kind of two tier systems of two different ways that we treat uh, people being caught by law enforcement with some type of substances, you know, depending on who you are, depending on your background, depending on your resources. So like, 
I think that is what makes it so that we need to, to be very attentive to like, you know, how this is impacting folks that are already marginalized uh, first and foremost. And, you know, not, not really just thinking of it in terms of, uh, you know, not really just thinking of it in terms of, of freedom, liberty, but also thinking of it in terms of justice and what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a major topic and subject that, that you, you feel a lot of shift going in, you know, across the country, uh, especially in states that already have legal cannabis markets, uh, you know, with, what is it, uh, Oregon and Washington that have now pretty much decriminalized all drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my curiosity, uh, is, is this, how do we get, cause you know, I'm all about educating, agitating and motivating mm-hmm. as many people as I possibly can. That's, that's what, where I feel like I can do the most good. So my question is, what can we do? Mm-hmm. What can I do and what can others like me do to get those people motivated, to, to get the motivation out there? Um, because I, I'm sure you would agree that we're stuck basically mm-hmm. in a tug of war currently between two major political parties. Mm-hmm. And uh, my thinking is this is mainly due to the overemphasis by the media of who the, the whole right versus left rhetoric. Mm-hmm. That means absolutely nothing. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm I'm trying to, aside from just my cannabis activism, sure. you know, I'm trying and, and have been trying for years. Because like I said, you know, at the beginning, this whole political thing has been an interest of mine since I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, it started because of the simple fact that my mom and dad were having a political discussion. I won't call it an argument. I'll call it a discussion. <laughs> uh, and I don't even remember what the topic was at this point in time. But I just popped off and said, well, you know, it don't matter anyway. And they looked, both looked at me like I was nuts. And, and <laughs> I just spit out, you know, everybody knows that, you know, the government's not of the people, by the people, for the people anymore anyway. Mm-hmm. And and my dad looked at me, and, and of course, I didn't know Republican, Democrat, or any of that at that time. I was a 10-year-old kid, right? But he looks at me like, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, everybody knows the government's owned and operated by big business. <laughs> he told me to shut up. I was a dumb little kid. I didn't know what I was talking uh-huh. about. But that <laughs> that that conversation and him telling me that, that that I didn't know what I was talking about is what intrigued me. Mm-hmm. And it was from that point on, I mean, I was the kid always getting the encyclopedias and the history books out of the library and, uh, you know, history teachers loved me in school, <laughs> but, uh, and, and government economics, uh, my senior year in high school, we, we had to wait till, till our senior year to be able to take government economics. It was one course combined uh, somehow, I guess, uh, but that was a credit we had to have, of course, to graduate. Mm -hmm. I had everything else I needed by the end of my junior year. I just needed that one half a credit of government economics and government economics teacher hated me (laughs) because I slept through class and I took every test and made a hundred on it. He (laughs) just hated me. 
but I, the class was boring to me by the yeah. time I got to be a, you know, a, a senior in high school, but, uh, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but <laughs> the, the whole, the whole thing I was trying to get at is, is getting people involved today and to be able to see beyond all the right, left rhetoric. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you agree that, that 99% of, of what we hear today from both the politicians as well as the media, Mm -hmm. Because the politicians have learned to use this to their advantage, right? Um, but do you do you agree with me that that this whole right versus left, ninety nine percent of it is just that? It's simple rhetoric that really means a whole lot of nothing. I I think that you know, as someone who has a PhD and is a college professor for whatever those credentials mean, I want I want to make you your ten year old self feel feel validated today. <laughs> That's okay. important to me. <laughs> right. uh, no, I, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of research on, on what you're saying. I think it's not only sort of conventional wisdom for people that are paying attention, but there's a lot of research that the media does play a huge role in amplifying what we call like horse race politics, right? So the idea that we don't think of political issues anymore in terms of how is it going to impact us? How is it going to impact our community? How is this actual policy going to impact my friends and family? Or, you know, what is it going to do for this country? People think of it in terms of, is it more advantageous for Democrats or Republicans? I want to make sure that my side wins. Sure. So you see this in the, and you know, it's something I see as someone who's interested in democracy I see this as in terms of the backslide that we, we've been experiencing in terms of democracy, not only with people sort of being cynical, but also in terms of uh, the way that uh, laws get manipulated. But you'll see in the news, this policy, you know, or, or these politicians are trying to pass this law. And rather than actually talking about those implications, it, 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 talk about how it's going to impact the country, talk about how it's going to impact people. We talk about how it's going to impact the relative success of these two parties, the blue team and the red team. So the blue team gets an advantage if this law gets passed, the red team. But we're, we're talking about the decisions that impact more people than anything else in the world. You and I, just as regular folks, are never going to have as much ability to make a decision that impacts people in the same way that politicians do. But we treat it like that's not the case. We treat it like it's just this game that they're playing. Yeah. And I think people get very caught up on it. I mean, you know, for anyone who spent way too much time on Twitter, you see this <laughs> a lot where, you know, a lot of it comes down to conversations being about people wanting to, uh, you know, really uh, feel good about their political identity. They want to feel good about the the, or the party that they're supporting. They want to feel good about that. Their, their identities are very deeply tied to this thing. You know, you ask someone who they are, and they'll give you a, a political label sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's really dangerous because it, it does make it so that people end up working backwards, so to speak. Sure. So they're going to say, well, I, I have this political ideology or I, I support this political party. So that means that whatever this, that whatever that means is now what I believe, rather than actually trying to figure it out for themselves, doing that kind of research 
that you know happens when you're you're young and you're you're curious about how the world works or doing that kind of research that um people like me are, are fortunate enough to like get paid to do that you know and i see a lot of this on the internet i think one of the most dangerous aspects of this as you mentioned is you know when it comes to these massive issues of human importance like the the way our legal system operates you know how many people are are incarcerated for something that is relatively you know victimless there's a consensus between the two parties right now you know the the president of the united states who's supposed to be sort of this uh face of the more you know forward thinking party is the author of the 1994 crime bill that led to so many people being incarcerated he is a huge proponent of that so you know, I don't I don't really think I think that this is one area where we can see, yeah, both both parties have it wrong. Maybe they disagree about about their rhetoric and how overt to be about it. How much do they want to openly, uh, you know, stigmatize people that are criminalized? How much do they want to turn them into scapegoats and and, uh, you know, fear monger about it? But the policies that are being, uh, you know, forwarded are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's been even with this grassroots movement, you can see how the Biden administration it, it just treats uh, these very popular issues like reforming cannabis, which you would think would be a slam dunk. They no won't doubt. touch it. It's a third rail issue. And I think, you know, the more that we have these loyalty to different parties and yeah. we're thinking about it in terms of I just want my side to win. I think it, it undermines not only like, you know, what you're saying, like, you know, it creates a false division, but it also, you know, it limits our imaginations. You know, we're having we just mm-hmm. had this conversation about what would the world look like if we ended the world, the war on drugs. You know, if you're concerned about the agenda of a certain political party, you can't even imagine that because neither one of them is proposing it. It's not on, it's not on the debate stage. It's not being yeah. talked about on, on the news in the same way. So, no. yeah, I think that does a lot of damage to what people can imagine in terms of what uh, what kind of world we want to live in. Hey, y'all. As pointed out in the intro to this episode, my conversation with Professor Rosino was so in-depth at times and lasted so long, I have split this one into two episodes. Please join us for part two of this conversation in episode 18. Gramps Plays, where Gramps and his guests discuss all things of public interest and anything else that might need a little changing here in the good old USA. From ending the drug war and freeing those wrongfully imprisoned for crimes that have no victims, to making government more like what our forefathers intended of we the people again. Gramps talks with doctors, scientists, politicians, and more, so you can make your own decisions on important issues in the USA. Be sure to subscribe where you get your podcasts or visit GrampsPlace.net today. And as always, thank you for listening to Gramps Place. <laughs>